Printmaking has always been mirrored and relied on technology. And it becomes a problem, I think, when people just want to hold on to a limited part of that technology. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. Currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relieve printmaking, their Woodzilla Presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that makes them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist, while still guaranteeing a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. This is a special episode, Print Friends. It was recorded while I was in residence at the Institute for Electronic Arts at Alfred University earlier this year. It is the first in a three-part deep dive into the Institute through the artists who teach at the university and an exploration into the ways in which technology intersects with contemporary printmaking. My guest this week is Joseph Shear, an artist, distinguished professor of print media at the School of Art and Design at Alfred University, and the director of the Institute for Electronic Arts. We talk about his journey to co-founding the Institute after coming to the school initially as a student to study ceramics, childhood dreams of rooms full of beautiful paper, the queerness of moths, and the genders of cacti. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get drawn to the flame with Joseph Shear. Hi, Joseph. How's it going? Good morning, Miranda. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. I'm very excited to be starting this week out talking to you and kicking off my residency at the Institute for Electronic Arts this morning. Wonderful, gray, cozy morning here in Alfred, New York on a Monday. And I've known you for a few years. I think I've known you through SGCI conferences and mutual colleagues, but I would love it if you could just start us out right by answering the Hello Print Friend questions of who you are, where you are, what you do. Okay. I'm Joseph Shear. I'm a distinguished professor of print media at the School of Art and Design at Alfred University, and I'm also the director for the Institute for Electronic Arts at Alfred, which I've been doing for 26 years I've been part of the Institute as co-director and now full-time director and I have been teaching at Alfred for 34 years. 
Wonderful. And then where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Well, I was born in Heidelberg, Germany. I was an army brat and then moved around quite a bit when I was young. Settled kind of in the Midwest and then went to art school. Took some years off first and lived in Charleston, South Carolina, and I did construction and and did shrimping and fishing and things like that, and then decided I wanted to go to art school. Did my undergraduate work here at Alfred, my graduate work at the University of New Mexico, and it's a long league of important people out there that I had the opportunity to meet and work with as well and started showing very early on in the LA art scene while I was in New Mexico and then moving to New York here I've been slowly worked into showing globally with my work. Yeah and then so as a kid with all the moving around were you getting exposed to different cultures were you going to museums were you seeing folk art what was the visual culture of your childhood like so i was an army brat so i was living on military bases but even at a really young age i always knew i wanted to be an artist Mm. my dreams were somehow that i was in rooms full of paper color paper and beautiful paper and that was just a strange fantasy that i have as long as i can remember And it turned out to come true. To come true. That's beautiful. (laughs) So I surround myself with lots of different kinds of papers, and especially my relationship with people in China, which is all the different kinds of Chinese paper as well as Western papers. Yeah. And the papers across Asia. Yeah, absolutely. And so at what point did print media come into your life? So you had this, you knew the paper would be there. But what about sort of printmaking as we think of it? And printmaking, it happened my sophomore year in art school. I thought I was going to be a ceramicist. And the reason I originally came to Alfred is because I was actually making pottery in Charleston, South Carolina, and going to like craft fairs and that selling work. And I heard about Alfred through Penland School of Crafts mm. and did a summer gig there. And all the glazes were Alfred this, Alfred that. Cynthia Bringle was one of the people there that I kind of just loved her work. And I got to work with Ron Myers, which who actually made the plates that we ate on last night, a series oh, lovely. of fish plates I have commissioned him to do and a number of years ago. So from there, I came to Alfred, and I had a class with Jesse Sheffrin, and I never wanted to do ceramics again. <laughs> I fell in love with Prince, and I just started going crazy and making thousands and thousands of prints, basically. Yeah, and did you start out with litho or etching or any kind of photo process? Did you just dive in? I think the wonderful thing about Alfred, and maybe why I came back here, is they teach a very holistic approach to print. The classes, as they were back then, are still today, that you don't specialize in one media. So the sophomore classes work across a whole range of non-traditional and traditional prints and hybrid forms that work into the digital technologies. So you'll switch back and forth freely between etching, screen print, lithograph, woodcut, monoprint, and any myriad of polymer plate 
all sorts of different processes. So, and that goes all the way up through the grad program through the digital processes as well. Mm-hmm. And now with laser cutters and other technologies, 3D printers may be coming in soon as for making plates to print. So it's always been a thing for, about how I see the print world is not one specific meaning and not specialized, that it's a, a way of translating images through a multitude of processes yeah. and hybrid processes. And so what do you think it was about printmaking that captured you once you, you realized that ceramics wasn't going to be your life's work? I guess there's something magical about just pulling the paper off of the matrix and seeing the image and see that transformation. Yeah. And I always laugh. I used to say I wanted to do printmaking because ceramics had too much process. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that there's something, I guess, that I love process. Mm-hmm. So that's an important part of it. And, and seeing things get translated. You asked earlier about growing up, since I moved so much and being around different people and learning different ways that people speak even in the United States I had a southern accent when I was younger because mm. I lived in Alabama and Texas and I, when I moved to the Midwest I had to quickly eliminate it because I talked funny yeah. compared to the school kids at that time so I think it's always like trying to be aware of my surroundings who is there how what are the what is the culture who are the people what do they eat right and also then what grows there so even at a very young age, I was always interested in the flora and fauna of the spot. In Alabama, I was always getting in trouble uh, because I didn't want to play with the kids on the playground. I would be running off into the neighboring woods to explore <laughs> yeah. and getting muddy shoes and coming back. And then the nuns would be very upset with me and scold me and stuff for <laughs> tracking up the school and not staying on the playground. Yeah, which I feel like is is so ironic, particularly from the perspective of a nun, is that you were out there commuting with, quote-unquote, God's creation, right? You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was breaking the rules and disobeying yeah. them. So. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. We'd get out the ruler. Yeah. Nuns, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then so you said you did your undergrad at Alfred, and then you found your way back here. Was that almost immediately after grad school? In New Mexico, I stayed a couple of years. I was showing in Santa Monica galleries, big galleries and that, and it was doing really well. So I was there for like three years after graduating and also taught at UNM. I was hired back in adjunct positions to teach drawing. Mm. And then from there, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. It was also the height of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. And... I found myself taking care of friends who were dying, and I'd lost a lot of people at that time, so it had a really profound effect on on me of, in that, because it seemed like it came to New Mexico a little late, mm. but when it did, it came with a vengeance, and it was just seemed like people were just dropping left and right and very rapidly, so it was a, a lot of turmoil Yeah. at that time. What was your work like in the middle of all of this? Were you still finding space for practice? Yeah, I, it was prolific. I've always been fairly prolific compared to other artists. I, I'm only happy when I'm making things. So even though I do a lot of administrative things and running the institute, it's a, I need to have time to make work for my own sanity. So the work at that time was these crazy 
huge woodcuts that had lithographs on top of them, or etching and lithograph and woodcut combinations. And they were like six foot by eight foot, all the way up to eight by 10 foot. And I would basically in my studio come cut sheets of plywood that would just as large as they would fit through the press bed and then had large litho plates and steel plates that I could just staple to the wall and do these, <laughs> we called them butt prints back then because <laughs> the paper butted up, together, the blocks butted up together. And I treated it as one image and then disassembled them to the print. And so they were very quite different from what I do now because I was affected by the neo-expressionist mm. of the time. The work that I was seeing was the Immendorf, Middendorf, Sandro Chia, as well as the huge Frank Stella prints coming out of Tyler Graphics. They were rich, thick, juicy, just gorgeous kinds of things. So I wanted to kind of rebel against the Tamron aesthetic and the teachers of the time that mm-hmm. wanted to have the transparency of the paper, thin layers of ink, and all the things that they were trying to drill into that I was like, no, I didn't want to do that. I yeah. wanted something like put a whole can of ink on one print and what would it be like using potato prints for the borders really thick. And so they were really thick, juicy, ex- expressionist marks carved with a chainsaw, body grinders, and then really fine chisels, really nice chisels that I could cut through the wood like butter. So it was from coarse to refined marks on the same thing, and then the lithograph would go on top of them. So uh, they were really huge and then difficult to do after a while, and it was like really messing up my back. Mm. So trying to lay these huge sheets of paper and big blocks and leaning over too much. I still have a number of those prints around. So. Lovely. And is that what you were working on when you came to Alfred? The, that that style? was what I was working on mm-hmm. when I came at the time. And I continued when I got to Alfred, bought an even larger press, one of the first things I did here and for the shop, and then was able to print like six foot prints. So they were basically about 44 inches by six and a half feet long, almost seven feet for the Takish press that we had so on one sheet of paper so that's what I then started to do for a while and then at what point does the story of the Institute for Electronic Arts start it's kind of funny because as soon as I got here Haraboda who was teaching video asked me in the interview question what did I think about the digital art and its applications and I lied I said (laughs) I thought it was interesting (laughs) and I actually just had framed a piece, because on the side it would make frames for people. Framed my first digital print by an artist of the time, and I, I thought the piece was kind of odd and unusual, but I was curious about it. So I told him, oh yeah, I'm just I'm interested in it. So he wouldn't let that go, and so he would follow me around and want to teach me things. And to the point, we, we had a running joke that if I see him coming down the hallway, I would quick duck and run the other <laughs> way, because he would sit me down for like, three-hour lessons without a break 
showing me things and my eyes would glaze over at the first 10 minutes and mm-hmm. then I was just there in pain for the, <laughs> the last few hours. But at, at some point it really clicked and I found, oh, I saw the possibility mm. through a myriad of processes. Okay, this makes sense, what I can do with this. And then from that, and as well as working with Jesse Sheffrin, who is here in print area, we were saying, thinking like, well, how do we get digital media or computers into our classrooms? You know, like art school budgets at the time were kind of minimal. You bought an easel every once in a while, printing press every 20 years Mm -hmm. and that, so that you would, didn't have these big purchases where one computer could wipe out the whole budget for the division. So we met with the administration and through the encouragement of the, actually the engineering deans, they wanted us to start the institute. So that was a way that we could become an an entity that could apply for funding, work with industry to get equipment. So at first we were the electronic arts initiative starting in 1990 right away we started that and then had some really great consultants that were alumni who worked with us pro bono because they really loved alfred and they wanted to make it happen and they knew everybody in industry and in no time at all we were getting these huge equipment donations of the iris printers the the cytex scanners g clay printers was actually a company that made a printer called Jaclay. There were drum printers that were similar to the Iris, scanners, all sorts of different things, and then building up computer classrooms until we got to be very successful and officially formed the Institute in 1997. Okay. And what year did this journey start? How long did that take from that kind of first undertaking to the Institute getting its stamp in 97? Well, I think it actually kind of started as soon as I got here Mm. because we started having these weekly discussions, Jesse Pear and I, after he was engaging us with the digital media and video and that. And he coming from video and working at Experimental Television Center, he worked with a lot of artists. And similar in a way that print shops work with artists. You have a technician in that that help with the work and they would come in and learn and do their work. And then... Jesse and I coming from Print Print Media, there's a long history of collaboration there. So the three of us said, well, why don't we do one? You know, how our interest was, well, there's all these new electronic tools and they're changing the world, changing the medium. Mm-hmm. And so we came from a print and, and video base yeah, to get everything going. And then today, like our recent purchases and grants that we got were for motion capture suits and 3D scanning. So it still continues. We did a workshop this last summer that included them. And then the students did some 3D prints over in the engineering labs, as well as came in here to the Institute. And they all did digital prints from the work that they did from the motion capture processes and de-scanning and using Unreal and all these other things to do stills that then became prints. Mm. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe the kind of perceived philosophical tension between print and expanded media. As someone who's been really at that nexus for over 30 years in your career, 
I just would love to give you a, some space to reflect on it because I, I do think it's a false dichotomy, but you've, you've put way more thought into it than I have, I'm sure. When I think about it and I talk to people about it, and I've lectured internationally quite a bit on digital media and its inclusion in conferences and universities all across China where I'm invited repeatedly to come and set up actually digital print studios in institutions in China, that printmaking has always involved the technology of the day mm-hmm. uh, from the very first woodcuts, at, what is it, 800 AD or ABC, or it's mm-hmm. like a, whatever it is, or how it came from carving on bamboo edges that were books to when somebody started rubbing ink on them and transferring them to paper through what is engraving of that was used on armor that somebody decided to use the carbon black and pull prints from that to alloy Senefelder inventing lithography to offset printing to even letterpress that used engraved blocks that went from more like how we read the newspaper, the images from that that then started using strange photo processes that don't exist anymore and to to date so i think printmaking has always been mirrored and relied on technology and it becomes a problem i think when people just want to hold on to a limited part of that technology and i guess part of the philosophy i have with print that you need to do several mediums to really understand it that you know is and seeing discussions like well I do mesotint, which is this, they're beautiful prints, and I love them. And I love traditional woodcuts, and I collect them. And I still love all those medium. But I'm also thinking of the future of where print can go. Mm. And, you know, in print media, what's the difference between image and text that was in a book that was done in a printing press Mm -hmm. to now that we have Instagram that's image and text or Facebook or other things and there's within that there's the good and the bad i remember when we first started doing digital prints and you know some of the conversations like well how do you know something good everybody could do it and i would uh, pick up a pencil and say well everyone knows how to use a pencil mm-hmm. but not everyone is good at drawing yeah and then there's people who are good at drawing that maybe don't make good or important drawings mm. so it's just like any field so it's a, a funny thing that, that somehow printmakers get stuck on that because of their working in one of the processes that they're left out or it's not as important or they belittle the digital technology sometimes in a ways because they don't see them as labor intensive or important But the person who makes the good digital prints knows how to draw. Mm -hmm. They know color. They know composition. They know all of those things to do that. So they are using technology, even the people working with the AI right now. There's a lot of god-awful stuff coming out of that. I just look at it and shake my head. But there's some really interesting things with the right artists picking up those tools, looking at them asking the right questions of the technology and then making the interesting work. Mm. So I think with the printmaking, print media, which I love, and I love all the old processes, still do, like my woodcuts, but I use a laser to carve them. The Italio prints, although I'm using polymer plates, 
and then combining things and also all the digital prints I make, it's just like, well, what can this technology offer me and how can I push it? And how can I push it in ways that we can do things that haven't been seen before mm-hmm. without taking away from anything? It's the argument like what photography was going to kill painting, right. you know, and it's, it was a silly argument because that never happened. And now photographers have been talking to because we're doing a photo search here is they're worried like photography is being killed because of the iPhone and things like that and people using it but it's just not true it's just like it's evolving Mm -hmm. yeah I love what you were saying in there about asking the right questions of media and finding out what it can do for you and the ways to use it because it really speaks to for me this idea of us all being in the business of image making and coming to understand how do we use what's available to us to create what we think needs to be in the world. And that's in its most simple form, what learning about technology as it relates to making visual culture and making art means. And I it can't help but think about the fact that humans are just so naturally inclined to sort of gatekeeping and tribalism and and they we want to know who we are by saying who we're not and that that expands often into the way that we define ourselves through the art that we make and it's just so funny to me because I'm like like we're all the underdogs if we're in the arts we're the underdogs yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> so we should all be same t- I just want to be like same team guys <laughs> yeah. yeah and I think within print because we're already this outsider marginalized kind of artist to a lot of people I mean I've had people who tell me like well if you're doing printmaking how can you really get shows yeah. because you're as you're not like doing paintings and I says well I don't have problems getting shows I've had a hundred one person shows at least mm-hmm. maybe more I don't know how, how to count them all up and I think it's people are interested in the, the work and the images and the art and they didn't ask the question of what media it was yeah. so but it is hard when I know people who are really working just on paper or, or things in, in a way, and they do really beautiful things. But how do they find their market and that to survive? It's it's always a challenge. Yeah, it is for sure. And what you were saying, it reminded me of something that's happened to me a few times. You know, working as someone in commercial galleries, which can really be that focal point of the art world meeting the general public, meeting the civilians, as can work in commercial galleries. And I've worked a lot with prints. And I've had conversations with people where I've realized that they're buying a print for maybe $4,000 that they think is just a reproduction of something. And they have no idea what's gone into it, but they're so in love with the image that they, in a way, don't care how it's made. And that that's how most people interact with visual culture is it doesn't have this deep dive into process and meaning and then attributing value to process and meaning. It's much more about, am I moved by this? Am I connected by this? Is this going to improve my life, having this in my home, having this in my Mm -hmm. psyche? And we get in the weeds a lot as people who are so close to this dialogue that 
we kind of lose that eye in the sky perspective that people mm-hmm. outside of the art world yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I think the people who collect my work don't care about what the process is. Mm. They're not asking that question first. They're, they, they are seeing it and they want it. And they're, they're always usually, usually say oftenly that, what is this? Yeah. Is this a watercolor? Is this a, a photograph? It doesn't look like a photograph. It doesn't really look like a painting. It's, I say, well, this is a woodcut with, uh, cut with a laser and, you know, from images of my trips to Mexico to do biodiversity of cactus. And they're like, a woodcut? That does not look like a woodcut. What is it? Yeah. So they're, they're interested and curious about it. So I think, so I think my work with biodiversity becomes forefront, you know, that that is the subject matter, the topic, and then just the impact of the images is what people become interested in first and then want to ask questions yeah. about it later. So they come up to them and get, are confused, and I love that because they don't know what they're looking at. The moth images, most of them always said they're butterfly, but they know it's kind of not a butterfly. Yeah. What is this? It's too beautiful. It can't be a moth. you know. So things like that that are said, that, that they're confounded and confused by seeing what I do, and then they fall in love with it. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. And you know, speaking of the moths, I was thinking particularly when you see them, I think particularly in person, there's this sense of seeing something more real than real because you're not used to seeing an image like that. So it does almost play a bit of a mind game because we're not used to seeing images so sharp, so in focus, so large. And... I could see how it almost seems like you're looking at a digital screen that's still or almost like an uncanny valley kind of a of an experience to see them in person. Would you speak to the project of of the moths? I know you're in in cactuses a bit more now, but I think a lot of people might know you for the moths initially. Yeah, the moths started out with the first getting this very high powerful scanner and just seeing what it would do. And then like throwing a little gnat on there and just saying, okay, this is so strong, see what the gnat looks like. And then when the image comes up being blown away, like, oh my God, that's what a gnat really looks like. Mm. Pearlescent wings, hairs all over its body, compound eyes that are pearlescent and reflective and metallic. And it was just like, oh my God, if this little gnat looks like that, what else out there that I'm missing? What am I not seeing? And being always close to the earth, close to nature, you know, the moths in the building here, Harder Hall, working here in the summer before I had my own studio, would always fly in at night and be attracted to light. Mm. And so I did all sorts of insects first, but then I settled on the moths because the poetics of them, the curiosity of them, why didn't I know anything about them? Why are they really colorful, a lot of them? They're quite beautiful. Their shapes are much more interesting than butterflies, I think. Their crazy antenna, their scale from minutiae to flying plankton in size to like these monsters that are big as bats. So then start experimenting with the scanning technology, and I chose just moths to, to figure out. And then I'm like, well, how many moths are just in this area 
around Alfred, New York. How many different species are here? And started working with Mark Klingensmith at the time at, out at his farm, collecting every night like of a summer. And we quickly realized that we had over a thousand species from one location. Because one of the, is like this part of New York is the diversity of plants is just pretty incredible. The diversity of trees are really high. And for learning more about the moths, that each moth has like a host plant or something that it eats. Some aren't even plants, some that eat mosses and dead animals. And there's a moth that eats only tortoise poop and things like <laughs> yeah. that. They all have a, a host. I guess there's even a moth that lives only in sloths in their in their fur, oh, you know. About that. So yeah. so that they became these really curiosity and, and then thinking about their poetics. For me, like, well, they, they're attracted to light. So they're like the Icarus that is attracted to the knowledge and but will burn themselves up by being attracted to light. Light at the end of the tunnel is supposedly the last thing you see before you die. So that transition. They're mostly creatures of the night. There's a lot of species that are only day flying. There's some that are both day and night flying. So that became curious to me. What is a creature of the night? You know, to me, it's like, well, it's about all the things that we have in our society that we never talk about. Mm. We don't bring to the forefront. From, for me, it was coming out of punk culture, queer culture, nightclubs, raves, those kinds of things, prostitution change of gender all of those things i think are symbolized in the moth mm. as being creatures of the night that they have that that kind of powerful possession of culture that is a majority in the insect world they're one of the top numbers of species they outnumber butterflies 14 to 1 in species that we don't know a lot about we don't share we don't talk a lot about so I, for me, they became this powerful symbol for the world that we lived in, that like, oh, why didn't I know that much about moths, that now I know so much about them, yeah. you know, that I just had to find out more and was curious, like, why did we relegate them to something that wasn't beautiful? Often, like the early shows, people would come in like, well, these absolutely are not moths, because these are beautiful, <laughs> and I know moths, and yeah. these are butterflies, and it's like, well, well the categories are like, well, how did we name some things in Lepidoptera butterflies and some moths? But they're actually all the same family. And there's like a subfamily of the, of the butterflies and, and skippers is another kind of in-between kind of thing. And then the, the multitude of moths that I sometimes tell people, well, and I heard from a scientist, well, maybe butterflies are just a small subfamily of mm-hmm. moths. If you look at the order of Lepidoptera, how things branch out in the family tree of where things go and how things are related. But it's also within our culture, how do we identify who is good, who's bad, yeah. who is smart, who is not, who is attractive, who is not? How do we name things? How do we give a name to something that's derogatory or positive because of our understandings, our misunderstandings of things? So the moths to me have this very powerful thing that's embedded in them and why I did them that a lot of people don't understand when they see them. 
you know, that for me, it was important that I started doing them coming out of the after AIDS epidemic and losing so many friends of searching for something time to hold on to, to think about the work and the world in a new way. Mm. And of course, then I totally flipped and from doing these big, heavy, juicy, monstrous prints with lots of ink to this, these really refined, highly detailed, transparent, translucent prints where the paper is an important part of it. And then I started printing on all these handmade papers and beautiful papers from China and that where the paper is a really important part of what holds the moth and how it looks on it. I don't use any shiny or photo type papers. I don't, I use a camera a lot. I don't see myself as a photographer. I still identify as a print person, a printmaker. And I think of how I make all of these images as a print process that that's always very important to mm-hmm. seeing and understanding the work for myself. Yeah. And what other people think, I don't know, but it's like for <laughs> me, it's like how I come to them. Yeah, there's so much beautiful stuff in there. And one that's sort of sticking with me the most is is this idea about how what we label things gives them the value, and particularly this knowledge of that a butterfly is just on the spectrum of mothness somewhere. And yet, you know, you don't see people getting moth tattoos on their hip and, you know, saying like... Oh, you do now. You do now? There's so many oh, people great. think they're butterflies or that, but there's actually, I think, thanks to the internet, there's uh-huh. a huge moth culture now that wasn't around when I started. Mm. But there's many, many moth tattoos. Oh, good. And I, I see them and I'm shocked because... When I first started, I couldn't find a moth book. There was like one field guide. And, you know, you'd go to the bookstore back when there was a lot of bookstores. <laughs> and there would be this huge section would be all birds. That would be the top. Then whales and dolphins. Then butterflies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at nature books. And then there was never a moth book. And now you can find moth books. So that's, which also was great that when I was kind of discovered doing my work, then I was I had the opportunity to publish books, my own books, from my images on moths and all the articles from National Geographic, yeah. you know, having my book reviewed in Science and Nature and from Der, Der Spiegel to Geographic published in 30-some languages, a thing about the project and the work I was doing. So it, it kind of just took off. Yeah. So the moths have been very good to me. <laughs> That's great. And in turn, you you know, help raise moth awareness, you know? I, I love that. And then the other thing you were saying about the the paper almost sort of, I mean, it's too heavy to say, like being a collaborator, but like the paper really altering the experience of the image. And I got to see this a little bit in person in your your studio yesterday when we were looking at the cactus woodcuts but you would have one image with the same block with the same ink and it'd be completely different paper to paper and really even though again same sometimes same ink same block it feels like a totally different piece and so at what point did your involvement and your knowledge in these papers, particularly, as you said, that are made in China, when did that kind of come a part of your practice and become a whole nother layer of the image creation that you do? Well, uh, coming from print, 
and having like I was very fortunate to also have John Wood as a teacher and he was this amazing artist and that and who loved paper made paper and talked about the qualities of paper and what I was printing on so I was exposed to Asian papers very early on and also what Jesse would say well try this try this look at trans really trans paper parent papers to see what they could do so that love of paper was instilled in me I mean even when I was tiny I don't know with those daydreams of being in rooms full of paper and then actually going to China and being a warehouse of ancient paper where, where there's like museums of stacks and stacks mm. of paper that people's paper collection of, of the Shuan paper that was decades old and worth millions of dollars just the paper with nothing right. on it because it, in that sense they become very valuable for how precious it is as well so also there's something about what I why I print and change the paper throughout the edition is that to break down hierarchies because mm. the moths taught me like well we have all these crazy hierarchies so I would print the really tiny moths the same size as the really large moths so they were all the same size and I would show them with nothing being a favorite so I try not to have a favorite mm. in anything I do and then so that the different papers I'm always impressed with how they make themselves known with the image especially like the all the different Chinese papers, the Shuan papers, which a lot of people in America don't know them because they weren't exported like the uh, like the Japanese papers. Mm -hmm. They're not readily available. So being able to go to Anhui province and it has like 400 workshops, family-owned places. They call them factories, but they're some are small. Just they make one sheet of paper, one kind. To some that do lots of different ones and just seeing the multitudes of different papers that they have from the pulps that are mixed in the blends that they make through the different colors and warm tones that papers have and they're natural their natural quality mm. that's so important to the work even though i use this incredibly high-tech digital technology i print on beautiful often handmade papers that are quite delicate well, and it seems like there's a bit of a conceptual connection there as well in terms of so much of your work is about the diversity of of forms and animals. And, of course, the papers themselves are made out of natural fibers. They're plants, you yeah. know? And the diversity of yeah. the plants that make the papers is just another millions and millions of billions of combinations of things in the world that you can do. But yeah. you see that, I think, in in the way that papers change the feeling of a work. Yeah. yeah. So that's always really important. Yeah. And so the cactus, which we spoke of just a little bit earlier, this is sort of a, a current project for you where you're going out and going in the field and collecting these images. Can you, what, what started that? What started the, yeah. the cactus interest? I was always, it's another thing that I was always interested in cacti. And, and being in New Mexico in grad school, I was collecting cacti. And I had like 50 different cactus species that I had. And I moved them to New York with me when I 
started here, but they don't like this climate. Mm -hmm. I still have some of those that are over 40 years old Mm. that I've had that long, but I lost a lot because it's just not a place for them to be happy because I didn't have a greenhouse or the right way to to take care of them. So I was always, it was like how the moths started. I always found the moths dead on the floor and I would collect them and put them in a dish on my desk before I started doing that. And then I had the opportunity, I was actually doing a big moth project for a Fulbright in Mexico in 2010, but I had done a number of preliminary trips there with the scientists from from Arizona and the Drylands Project. And so I was fortunate enough to get like the, the, this big Fulbright grant to do research on the biodiversity of moths of Sonora. And one of the places I chose to stay had a cactus forest because I saw it on one of my earlier trips. And I go, I want to stay there for part of my time in Mexico for that year. And I fell in love with the place. I did this crazy project where it's a book that weighs about 80 pounds. That's 140 cactus portraits. And they're all of Stenoceres thurberi, the organ pipe cactus, because each one of them has this personality. The scientist who sponsored me actually studied columnar cactus. So he took me on trips, like with his students and that, to see different species. And when a certain cactus was blooming in the area that I was, a certain species, I would call them up and they would come down and document and measure the blooms and the flowers and do counts of flowers on the cactus and the size and all of that so that he was approaching him from the scientific approach and he took me to San Nicolas near Bahia Quino in Sonora where the giant cardones are and that's a species of cactus that he's been studying his whole life mm. and our goal that I was helping him with was to photograph the five different sexes of the cardones and they're the most massive giant cactus on the planet. They're just, uh, the, and at that location, there's some really just gorgeous monsters. Mm. And I go back and visit them. And I was just back at Christmas to re-image them with my newer, better camera that are now becoming new prints. And he talked a lot about the back when I was there about the, this population of cactus that really had a lot of meaning to me because of the five sexes and he talked to them about them as a community and how can there be five sexes of something Mm -hmm. and said nature doesn't make a mistake and so i started thinking of all of the the strange dialogues that we've been having over the years and in my own lifetime the difference between gay the lgbtq t plus on and on and on and the diversity of humanity and what is what are our sexes? That there's probably there is a red paper that there is five sexes in people too. They just change people with snipping some things mm-hmm. at birth and sewing things up and never telling the, the child that there's states in between. Although rare, they do happen in nature. And he talked about this population of like how each one functioned, like a true male that only had. It only produced pollen in the stamens. A true female that only had ovaries. A hermaphrodite male that had produced some seeds that were fertile. Hermaphrodite female that had some pollen but and produced fertile seeds. And then a true neuter that was sterile. Mm-hmm. And the true neuter that was sterile was the curious one. Like, why did it exist? And why do they keep being created? And this population of cactus lives in a very hostile environment with 
three inches of rainfall a year, maybe some years more, some less. And they're the most largest, some of the largest plants on earth. They're unbelievable to see in person. You know, they make the giant saguaros of Arizona look puny. <laughs> and people don't get it. They think the saguaros are the biggest cactus. And I've seen many arguments online, but they, <laughs> they have to go see these, as well as other species of cactus in Mexico that are really monsters. So uh, I became really intrigued like then with the cactus because they also create clones. You, you know, a branch falls off of one species, it roots and grows. There's whole species of cactus that is all from one clone and that's sterile, but has found a way to reproduce and maybe the one plant is an acre in size. Wow. You know, they still bloom, they still do all of these other functions. The cactus also, too, of thinking the other kind of queerness of them and also thinking of how moths, like they have all these spines for protection and then how some grow, they lose them and they don't need them anymore. So mm. the top of the cactus has no spines, the bottoms don't. And all the different growth forms that they have are just fascinating and beautiful. And they have beautiful flowers and many of them have beautiful edible fruits that are really mm. quite delicious. So like the dragon fruit, for example, is a type of cactus. The pitayas of Sonora, the organ pipe, when they're fruiting, are just so delicious. They're some of the nicest fruits on earth. So those are all things that just the discovery of understanding cacti. And like then the the cacti, there's many people who love cactus, and there's maybe a lot more books and websites and groups on Instagram and Facebook that devoted to different families of cactus, there's still a lot of people that don't know anything about them, especially Mm -hmm. these giant ones. In Mexico, I show people the pictures there, and I go, like, that's in Mexico? Because they're up north. I've I've never seen those. You show me something about my country I don't know. And Mm -hmm. then there are also, I think, many people in the United States are very not informed about a lot of the cactus, especially the ones like I was showing you, like... You haven't seen it before. I hadn't seen those before. Far finding out about them and going down and searching them out and looking for these different species that are just mind-blowingly beautiful and huge. Yeah. Are they protected? Are they in Um, national forests? Are they... Some are protected. Mexico's doing a much better job about protecting them, as well as even in South America. Like in Chile, there's a lot of really crazy species that are are protected, but then there is a lot of poaching that goes on. Right. People collect them, and like some of the ones I have, I'm asked not to put the location because they're endangered. There's Mm -hmm. so many of them that I've seen and documented are endangered species, too. So they need that protection. So there's a lot of cactus now that are are illegal to harvest or take or or move. Mm. So so it's still a challenge because there's a lot of people who are seeking them out to find, especially the small, beautiful ones that have beautiful flowers and that for collections and personal collections, but often they kill them when they yeah, try sure. to transplant or grow, and they don't they don't make it. And that so it's it, it's like a real shame. So it's something that is incredibly beautiful and fragile, and needs a lot of work. And I think it needs to have a lot more information about them. Yeah, you know, people need to be aware of them. Yeah, because they 
they're perfectly adapted to live where they live, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, yeah. nowhere else. Do, do you have a, a dream place you'd love to go to, to document cactus? Like I'm thinking about like, I don't know, some place that you've seen them that you yeah. haven't been able to go to yet. I mean, there's still so many places in Mexico that mm. are future trips. Mm-hmm. I've been right down a road and just didn't go far enough to see a certain population oh. that I just like kick myself every time. Like if I just went two more miles, I would have found them, but I had wrong information. Mm-hmm. And that is a pecky sphinx species that I have to go see and document because they're supposed to be pretty spectacular. This one population of those, Chile, the the and Bolivia, and Peru have like amazing cacti, and I haven't been to see them. I want to go back to Argentina and seek out more species. I was there once and it, they're just phenomenal there mm-hmm. as well. They have like giant cactus that look kind of like saguaros. They call them the saguaros of the south that are really quite large. Some were really incredible monsters that I was able to get images of. And they're in these incredible environments that are so different than anywhere else. They're like these colorful mountains and crazy landscapes that are quite different than Mexico, which in a lot of the places where the cactus of Mexico are, even like the ones that I just photographed in Yucatan are kind of in a jungle. Mm-hmm. They're like, we're really difficult to get to and, and find because they're not out in the open. Where in Sonora, they're, it's like walking through a, a manicured garden and going around and photographing them in a lot of areas that are flat where I was because they're, it's uh, the vegetation is very sparse and the cactus are dominant in some of those places so it's easy to see them and find them but in other places you have to really look and seek them out to find them or they're in like cliffs or kind of more hostile environments for trying to hike or climb is in this conversation i'm sort of realizing that it's an interesting space where you're you're recent practice sort of lives in and reminds me of a really early like 16th century printmaking when they first realized that they could use it for scientific documentation but it still was so also wed to fine art as it was understood as well and it's 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 not even have so much a question it's just sort of thinking about that is that that place where we rely on visuals to give us information about the natural world which tends to live in the scientific realm but of course we need someone versed in visuals to do that for us which we think often is opposed to the scientific realm and that space where creating information meets just capturing kind of awe honestly, of either it's the cactus or the moths, which I've both seen. I've seen your work and it's just, that's what it feels like. is just that kind of stunning feeling of being stunned that you can get when you're faced with what the natural world produces. And it's all in there. Yeah. And I think I've been very fortunate to engage scientists and taxonomists in that, in the work that I do that they are very helpful and they're intrigued by what I'm doing. They love what I'm doing. And that I get images that, that they, I allow them to access to and use of the things that they've 
devoted their life to, you know, to show how beautiful they are. When I started doing the moths, many of the, the lepidopterists were just saying, thank you, you know, you really are yeah. showing the kind of work and, and the beauty of what I see every day that I'm not able to show people in my work that you're like getting it out there in a way that is very helpful. Yeah, that kind of like a science communicator in yeah. your own way, for sure. Because I, I, there's something about particularly getting the attention and holding the attention of the populace that science hasn't necessarily been great at <laughs> the way that like artists can do because we, we traverse emotional spaces and that is a, is a place that we get to live in and explore. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, because you know, with the one scientist who I worked for for many years, Mark Epstein, when I would start talking about the poetics of why I was interested in moths, and he'd be like, oh my God, how can you even see or say that? Because <laughs> he was just looking at very specific things. Yep. And he'd be talking about a gland or a foot mm-hmm. or a hook or something on it. And I go, well, these are totally queer. Look at their hairdos. Yeah. You know, this is, reminds me of a rave. I was in Switzerland one night. And look at the, how, how they're dressed up. And they're about this kind of... T- type of spirituality that they admit and then he's just like wait 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 like, it's too much for me but <laughs> and I was like seeing these things in them that were reasons why I was doing them were very different but then I learned a lot of science in doing that by working with the scientists I learned all these things that I would not see that mm-hmm. they're looking at very closely at to tell the difference between the different flowers a male flower a female flower the different hermaphrodites and the neuter that you first glance, well, they're all the same. But then when you start getting in and looking the, at the, the very specifics of them mm-hmm. that they see right away and then learning that, that I can then see right away and seeing how something is different, that I can see a different species. Mm-hmm. Go, okay, this one's different. I need to get a document. I need to talk to somebody. And then it's also keeping data that they made me start keeping data about where I'm getting things, locations, time of day, number that I seen at the location to share that information with them too. Yeah. I'm getting to spots and locations that they aren't. Yeah, absolutely. And I think measurements you mentioned as well and that kind of thing. So I'm sure, I think sometimes we feel like, or at least I get the impression for some reason that Anything important, I'm sure, has a bunch of scientists out there with all the resources they need looking at it. But that's really not true. No, it's not. <laughs> it's I mean, really not true. To, like trying to save things or understand things before they're gone. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially now with climate change, the moth species are moving around. They're yeah. not in the same places anymore. Their things are leaving areas, moving to a different environments. Things are being wiped out and who's paying attention to that in, in, in a way that it needs to or like even like with these cacti too it's the same thing as climate changes that are they moving or are they just dying out mm-hmm. you know who's paying attention to that absolutely and we need to I, for me it's like I'm obsessed with like well we, somebody has to take image of these that has to be done and it has to be done now yeah yeah you know? I, I agree well in the, the time that we have left, 
would you let people know anything that you're particularly looking forward to or any projects or anything on the horizon? Well, my time of Alfred is coming to an end and that as being a full-time faculty member, Mm -hmm. I guess I'll be connected here for life since it's been (laughs) such a big part of my life. But I'm looking forward to really spending time in the studio starting next year. Yeah. And then being able to travel to these places and working with uh, more images. So I'm really stocking my studio. I have 4,000 sheets of paper cut to size and ready to print for the woodcuts, the cacti. I've lots of blocks cut and ready to go, but just not the time. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the studio time yeah. while I still can to finish out some of these series mm. as much as I can. They'll never be done yeah. because I'm working on something that's slippery, that there's no end to the, the moths. There's no end to finding a new one they're always evolving and changing and they're always just finding new species as well with the cacti mm. and getting to all the locations to do that so it's doing as much as i can with the time i have to keep both those projects going yeah i have a huge project in china the moths of chang Shan, and covid brought it to a halt and there's like about 350 prints that are about six foot why that are ready to show that I'm hoping to do as soon as I can get back there and do the the last few prints and then get them into the exhibition that they're supposed to be in. That's exciting. And then where can people find you and find the Institute for Electronic Arts and find Alfred and the interweb? Uh, the Institute has its website blog, which is iea.alfred.edu. I've don't keep a website anymore. I'm just on Instagram. This is Joseph Shear and Joseph Shear Studio. And both of those are also on Facebook. I let the galleries do the website. I don't want to be, so I'm not competing with them or getting confused information out there. So I do a lot of personal information can be found on like my personal side and then art information on my art sites. Alfred does Western New York, South of Rochester. It was just about it, or just realizes the most collegiate town in the the country. I saw that in the coffee shop this morning, the newspaper. Yeah. The, like, Which yeah, is because it's a small village that only has seven hundred people in it. When the students all leave during the summer, and the rest, the thousands of students that come for the rest of the year, so that they outnumber the local <laughs> people because we're so rural. Yeah, we're a special place because we're so rural. We have phenomenal facilities that are like hard to find at institutions much larger than us so that allows people to to make things happen here yeah that can't happen elsewhere absolutely well thank you for sitting down with me and thanks Miranda thank you for the invitation to come be a artist in residence and electronic media here with the podcast and I'm really looking forward to the rest of the week here. So great, great. Enjoy. Thank you. Thanks. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, 
You can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Kathy Veda. Kathy is an artist and clinical professor of art in the School of Art and Design at Alfred University. We talk about her practice for the last decade of painstakingly creating hand-formed sculptures of snow and ice and the process of documenting them, how her MFA in printmaking evolved into this practice, what it's like to make art that's so reliant on the weather, and how she's been forced to adapt as our winters get warmer. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.